I found on the internet an interesting article called 10 Reasons That Competition Among Churches and Leaders is Problematic, written uh, by an American named Chuck. Um, <laughs> it's actually the wrong Chuck, but I thought it was just a real, it's the last day of the conference. I, how many of you young ones don't know who that is? Anyone? Just kind of... I, uh, Chuck Norris was the 1980s action hero before all this computer-generated nonsense, okay? Chuck Norris was once bitten by a rattlesnake, and after four days of writhing agony, the snake died. Now, here we go. Let's get on to what's really on about. This man is Chuck Lawless, who wrote the uh, Ten Reasons. Okay, a different Chuck. All right. Um, Let me go very quickly through the ten reasons why competition between pastors... And churches, um, and if you're in leadership, you're involved. Let me start at reason number two. Really quickly, I'll give you the, the, uh, the ten. I'll give you the number one reason last. Two, uh, it divides the church. That's because competitors seldom seek to help each other. Third reason, it magnifies our arrogance and judgmentalism. Um, churches and leaders who compete tend to build themselves up by tearing others down. You know the old water polo trick? I push you down as I lift myself up. That's, that's what we tend to do. Four, it creates distrust among pastors. And by the way, I've seen all these things in, kind of in wider life of churches and pastors. Five, it reflects our comfortableness. I'm not sure if that's a word, but comfortableness. And that is you don't compete when you're just grateful to know there's another Christian person in the area. Six, It fosters transfer growth more than conversion growth. Winning a competition is equated with having higher attendance and giving numbers regardless of the source of that growth. See, a lot of churches grow the way there are two backpackers and the bear. You know that story? Um, There are two backpackers in the woods and they meet the grizzly bear hungry and one guy sits down and puts on his running shoes and his mate says, you can't outrun that thing. They run at 35 miles an hour. He says, I don't have to outrun the bear. I've just got to outrun you. And that's why... A lot of churches seek to grow. Okay, number seven, it promotes a works-based theology, and that is even subtle competition reinforces that what I do matters and I need to do better than others to show my value. Eight, it encourages unhealthy consumerism. This one's worth thinking about. In a competitive environment, a primary aim is to increase customers by meeting their perceived and real needs better than others do. Sacrifice and commitment, the two primary callings of Christ's of Christ followers are not often central to the conversation. Nine, it hinders accountability in life-on-life Christianity. Accountability usually means admitting weaknesses and competitors don't typically think that way. And ten, it pushes leaders to keep an eye out for, quote, the greener grass. Competitiveness says, if I can't grow the biggest church, then maybe I just keep watching out for a larger church that might call me there. And that idea of the ministry career path but it was the number one that he put that grabbed me and that was this he says it reduces competition reduces the kingdom of God to my kingdom we don't compete because we want God's kingdom to be bigger but because we want our kingdom to be bigger want to be kings compete servants don't and folks Don't we, I, maybe you're guilty sometimes to turn God's kingdom into our kingdom? And that can be a problem for pastors. 
but for anyone involved in Christian ministry. A Christian leadership, it can become my group, my ministry. You even get individual silos competing within churches because it's our little kingdom. And so the way we see the kingdom of God will affect everything in our ministry, our goals, our contentedness, our confidence, our joy or lack of it. Aren't we sometimes guilty of thinking, my kingdom come? Just sometimes. But a focus on the kingdom and an understanding of God's kingdom will affect all of ministry and also church life. So let me show you a few things about the kingdom. Uh, understanding the kingdom now. Let me show you two, two different ways of seeing the kingdom as to what the scriptures show. And I, uh, the first one would be Roman Catholicism. Now, I'm no expert here. I'm happy to be corrected later, but I, I think this is correct and I think this is fair. And that is, my understanding, in Roman Catholicism, the kingdom of God and the church, the Catholic church, are basically the same thing. They're essentially the same. So as you protect the church, you're actually protecting God's kingdom. And I think that explains the lengths that some church officials have gone to in covering things up to protect the institution and hence the kingdom of God. Or at a different end of the spectrum, theological liberalism. What happens? I'll read you a quote. Theological liberalism removes eschatology, the end point, completely. And the apocalyptic husk of Jesus' teaching is thrown away. And the kingdom of God becomes simply the reign of love in the individual and society. Now, when you think that, there's no eschatology, what do you end up with? Well, the gospel becomes social justice. And what happens then? Well, the church follows the society around like a little puppy wanting a belly scratch uh, on whatever the latest fashionable cause. Now... How does the kingdom of God actually relate to our churches? Here we go. Just a little bit of introduction. The word church, ecclesia, simply means the gathering. And there's two main ways that the New Testament talks about um, the church or the churches. If you want to think of all Christian people, the New Testament talks about that gathered in heaven with Christ now or seated with Christ. Um, Perhaps the two clearest passages, Hebrews chapter 12. Here we go, Hebrews 12, 22. But you have come to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God. Notice you have come. It's not you will come. You have come, the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem. You have come to thousands upon thousands of angels in joyful assembly to the church or assembly of the firstborn, whose names are written in heaven. Now, the firstborn there, it's not, it's not talking about Jesus. It's plural. It literally is the firstborn ones. Us, meaning what? We're the ones who will inherit with the heirs. Right? Or uh, said in a slightly different way in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 6. And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus. So you want to say the church, you think all Christian believers gathered in heaven. Now, the other way to talk about it is the local assembly, which is, if you like, the complete expression of Christ church here on earth you don't add up all the individual local congregations to get the church the church gathered in heaven or the local assembly is the complete thing if you like manifest here on earth and so that's why when uh, when the apostles write they write so in a particular they talk about a church that meets in someone's home 
or when they talk about a geographic region, they talk about the churches, plural. Uh, I'll show you. Um, 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 14. Uh, Paul writes, uh, For you, brothers and sisters, became imitators of God's churches, plural, in Judea. Or when Paul writes to churches in Galatia, modern-day Turkey. See verse 2, um, chapter 1, verse 2. And all the brothers and sisters with me to the churches in Galatia. So, heavenly assembly or the complete manifestation of that, if you like, in the local church. Now, the church, or churches, the church, I'll say, is, is if you like, the centrepiece of God's renewing work. Um, you see it in Ephesians, particularly. Ephesians 3.10. So, the, the church is the centrepiece, the, the, the jewel in the crown, if you like. Uh, God's intent was that now... Through the church, the manifold wisdom of God should be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms. And as God brings Jew and Gentile together into one body, um, his wisdom is revealed to the, the powers in heaven, etc., uh, and here on earth. The wisdom of God is shown. The church is the bride of Christ um, that he bought with his own blood, Acts chapter 20, um, you see, the, the, the climax of the book of Revelation is the great celebration of, of Christ and his bride, the church. But here's the thing. The church is not the kingdom of God. And the kingdom of God and the church, or the kingdom of God and the churches, are not identical. Let me just read you a quote from uh, Herman Ritterboss, the Dutch theologian. He says, The kingdom is the whole of God's redeeming activity in Christ in this world. The church is the assembly of those who belong to Jesus Christ. You see a picture there of Herman Ritterboss smoking cigars. If only, he hadn't, if only he hadn't smoked, he wouldn't have been taken from us so early. He only lived to be 99. <laughs> I'm not saying you should smoke, all right? It's the last day, you need a little air in the tyres. Or a quote from, uh, I think it's the second last quote from G.E. Ladd. He says this, The church is the community of the kingdom, but never the kingdom itself. Jesus' disciples belong to the kingdom as the kingdom belongs to them, but they are not the kingdom. The kingdom is the rule of God. The church is a society of men or, or people. Now, we want to grow our churches, of course, but how do you do that? We preach the kingdom. Jesus as Lord or Jesus as King. That's how you grow your church. Now, let me show you something in Matthew chapter 16 that I've, I've really just noticed. Part of the problem is when you read Matthew 16 about Jesus building his church, if you're a redneck Protestant like me, you're so busy worrying about the Pope and the papacy, you miss, you miss the real point. Let me show you. Um, Matthew chapter 16, verse 18, our Lord says to Peter, and I tell you that you are Peter, the rock, right? You are Peter. And on this rock, I will build my church and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. I will give you the keys. Now, Jesus is going to build his church, right? When he says, I'll give you the keys, what's he talking about? Well, he's talking about preaching, the message, the gospel. But what, Notice it's the keys to what? I will give you the keys to the church, he says, right? No. What does he say? He says... Got it, Steve? Yeah, well done. I will give you the keys, what? Of the kingdom of heaven. 
So the way in which Jesus will build his church is as the apostles preach, what? The kingdom of heaven, the lordship of Jesus. That's how the church grows. A couple of chapters later, Jesus says in uh, Matthew 24, verse 14, and, the, and this gospel, not the gospel of the church, the gospel of the kingdom will be preached to the whole world as a testimony to all nations. So it's the preaching of the kingdom, the rule of Christ, uh, Jesus as Lord, that will actually that grows the church. One more thing about the kingdom, and it's just because it's just I, I love this, and, and, uh, and Fiona just read that passage for us. I don't know if you notice, uh, the, in, in Matthew 19, the rich young ruler comes to Jesus, and there's that, uh, the interplay with him, and the, I won't go into what Jesus says about the, the, uh, the commandments, etc. He, he walks away, gives up nothing, and then Jesus talks about salvation in terms of the kingdom of God. So Matthew 19, verse 24, Jesus says, Again, I tell you, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for someone who is rich to do what? To enter the kingdom of God. It's in that context of the kingdom of God um, that Peter says, We have given up everything to follow you. What I want to show you is in verse 28, Then Jesus said to them, Truly, I tell you, at the renewal of all things, When the Son of Man sits on his glorious throne, you who have followed me will sit on 12 thrones, judging the 12 tribes of Israel. Now, once again, I I scratched my head for so long, 12 tribes judging you. What's that? I missed. See that word there? There's one word, the renewal of all things. I put it in capitals. That's what I want to show you about the kingdom of God. That word, um, uh, my computer and I can still do Greek. Um, uh, that accordance program. Every time I use it, I think, oh, where were you in the 80s, baby? Anyway. <laughs> but that word, palingenesia. If you only want to learn one word in Greek, that's the one. Palin again, genesia, genesis. At the again, genesis. And the NIV's done a pretty good job translating the renewal of all things. Same words used in um, Titus chapter 3, verse 5, about regeneration of, of an individual through the work of the Spirit. You, you're born again. But here Jesus is talking about palingenesia, the renewal of all things, the remaking of creation, whether there'll be no more mourning or crying or pain or COVID or Alzheimer's, as Conan O'Shea waits for his dad to die of Alzheimer's. I know exactly what's that like. That's like my mum died of Alzheimer's 2017. The long goodbye. And God will wipe every tear from their eyes. I heard John Lennox, uh, who was just wonderful uh, teacher of the Bible and so on. I heard John Lennox talk about wipe every tear from their eyes. And he said, have you, if you have little children, how, have you, if they're crying... Have you ever thought how close and how gentle you have to be with them to wipe tears from their eyes? And that's the picture of how God will be with his people at the renewal of all things. So our view of the kingdom is bigger than just our local churches. That's that's what it needs to be. The church is the centrepiece, the centrepiece of that, uh, and, and that renewal of all things will be for the church and for his people. Um, that's Ephesians 1.22 and God placed all things under his Jesus feet 
and appointed him to the head over everything for the church, which is his body, the fullness of him that fills everything in every way. It, the renewal of all things, and the church is a centerpiece. But the kingdom is bigger than just our local churches. So what's the church's job? I put it that we are to be witnesses to the kingdom. Um, I know it's right, because J.I. Packer said it. Here we go. Um, uh, the task of the church is to make the invisible kingdom visible through, the faith, through faithful Christian living and witness-bearing. To show what it's like to live in his kingdom. So I said on, uh, on Tuesday, through, through joy and love and forgiveness. But here's what I found interesting. When you look in the book of Acts in terms of witness, when Luke gives us summary statements of what the apostles were preaching, well, well let me show you. Now, on the ground, they're preaching Jesus is Lord, Jesus is King. When you... The, the, text or the actual words of sermons are printed they're preaching jesus as king resurrected but look at the summary statements that luke gives say um acts chapter 8 verse 12 but when they believed philip as he proclaimed the good news what of the kingdom of god and the name of jesus christ or um acts chapter 19 verse 8 paul entered the synagogue and spoke boldly there for three months arguing persuasively about the kingdom of god or as Paul's on his way to Jerusalem and he calls the Ephesian elders uh, and they meet him. He says, Acts chapter 20, verse 25. Now I know that none of you among whom I have gone about, what, preaching the kingdom will ever see me again. Or Luke's summary at the end of the book of Acts about Paul as he's on house arrest in Rome. Um, Acts 28, 31. He proclaimed the kingdom of God and taught about Jesus Christ with all boldness. So summary statements, they preached the kingdom the lordship of Jesus. And you can see on the ground, that's Jesus is king, resurrected. Now, let me just pull a few threads together from these three talks as I've uh, we looked at the kingdom. If you're waiting for you to hit that absolutely smooth water at your church and uh, to be just cruising along and be able to take it easy, put your feet up, all that sort of thing, right? Just kick back and... Being a pastor or leader in Christian ministry would be, be easy and smooth. It's never going to happen. It's not, it's not going to happen, not this side of the Lord's return. Let me just give you a couple of reasons. One is uh, the kingdom of the evil one continues. Now, Hebrews says Satan's had his back broken, his power over us is broken because Jesus has dealt with the guilt that gave Satan his power, yes. But we saw in the second talk, even after the resurrection, Paul calls Satan the God, small g, of this age, 2 Corinthians 4. In 1 Peter 5, he's called the roaring lion, walking around seeing, seeking to devour. Um, in Matthew 13, in the parable of the weeds and the wheat, Jesus says uh, the people of this world are what? The people of the evil one, or the sons of the evil one. And, and the churches, or the church, or church, will be the focal point of that conflict. And who do you think is at the pointy end of the focal end? It's Christian leaders. Expect it. The other one is a little more subtle, and that is churches will always live, and leaders will always live, or should always live, with the tension between the immediate and longevity. The immediate and the long term. So you've got, to, you've got to live with Jesus will return like a thief in the night and could return at any time. But you need to entrust the gospel to faithful people who will be able to teach others, etc. 
And you see two mistakes at, at the two ends of the spectrum. And that is some Christian leaders want to operate like, uh, like cowboys and operate all on the urgent. Uh, you do that, and I'll tell you what happens. Um, <laughs> uh, and I notice that the FIC exec, I'm, I'm the ready, fire, aim guy. I need to fess up. Like, you know, Kathy, my wife shakes her head, said, ready, fire, aim, right? Uh, I, what time is it? Let's get on with it. Hey. And uh, our beloved chairman is always dragging me back saying, uh-uh, uh-uh, 80, 100 years, how do we think? And I think, ah, oh, yes. But I'll tell you what, if you operate like a cowboy in the short term, what will you do? Well, you'll drop the standards of ministry training. Instead of, you know, testing people's eyes, you'll count them. One, two, oh, you're in. Uh-huh. Um, uh, you won't be theologically rigorous. You won't be careful about alliances and who you work with. Um, you'll have no processes in place to make you disciplined. You'll not be thinking about the next generation. And I'll tell you what happens. Evangelicals start organisations or denominations and then again and again and again and again we lose them because we've not been disciplined in thinking long term. And we- so you've got to have... You can't, you can't live like a cowboy like with no... Pro- you've got to think long term. And that goes against every fibre of my uh, personality. But the other side, you can only think long term and turn into a bureaucracy. And that means what so many of our denominations do, you know, they're like kind of, yeah, okay, you might be theologically straight, yes, but there's no sense of urgency, we'll be here forever, and you end up in bureaucracy. Thinking of the rule book came down from heaven. Um, and you've got these huge assets all tied up. The guys who actually believe the gospel, but it's all tied up in red tape and other nonsense. And, but the good news is, when the Lord returns, we'll be able to show him the millions of dollars of assets tied up in red tape and say, here, Lord, we buried this for you. You've got to live with both. You've got to live with both. And it is a... Um, uh, shall we say, it it comes up constantly at the FIC executive. We need to be flexible. We need to let these people in. We've got to just bend the rules a bit. We're in a, you know, we need to, this needs to last way beyond our lifetime. How do we do that? What processes? What, and you need to be doing that in your church as well. Because your church needs to keep going beyond your leadership. And how will you do that? And how will you think about succession in your particular role, etc.? That's the tension that you'll live with. Oh, look at this, a quote from G.E. Ladd. Who would have thought? He says this, the realist, uh, sorry, the realis- this is great, the realisation that they may well be the last generation before the final victory of the kingdom, right? you, this, the Lord might return tomorrow, yeah, the last generation, and yet the necessity to plan and work with the sanity of a long-term perspective for the future is a biblical tension. A truly biblical church will build for future generations and yet will ever be praying with fervency, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Even so, come quickly, Lord Jesus. All right, let me just, uh, a few comments. You need to actually expect the spiritual battle. And the more effectively you preach the gospel, the more you should expect the spiritual battle. And it may come personally with health and all sorts of problems as I've heard these few days or it may come with 
complaints that get in the way of our ministry. It may, it'll come in all sorts of forms, but don't be surprised. Secondly, a big view of the kingdom will mean we're not bogged down or have blinkers on about just our own parochial work. Now, I know I'm preaching to the choir here because you guys are here at the Fellowship of Independent Evangelical Churches. I know that. But let me, um, uh, let me just preach to the choir for a minute. A view of the kingdom will mean that we can see and think and look beyond our own churches to kingdom work. Seeking first God's kingdom will also mean generosity. Generosity as you wish others well, that you rejoice in their successes, that you help financially and that you give resources. Pete Bradbury's in the, our little five-person prayer group and he was talking about uh, Centenary Gardens Church Plant yesterday. <laughs> and I said to Pete, does it feel like donating blood? He said, no, donating a leg. <laughs> he meant it. It's a quarter of his people, the, the foundation stones in his church, and he's going to be generous. I'll tell you where else you see it, and I'm going to get into trouble for this, but I've, hey, it's the last day. When a church gets to a certain size, it can become its own universe. And I had 30 years with Katoomba Christian Convention. If you don't know about Katoomba Christian Convention, it's a convention for Christians at Katoomba. Okay. A lot of thought went into that name. And we used to run the kick convention for high schoolers. And what frustrated me no end was that the larger churches in Sydney didn't attend. And if you talk to the youth ministers of those churches, they'd say, oh, no, look, we're big enough now. We've got hundreds of kids. We, we run our own thing. We've got them because we can do a better job than you guys can. We, we run our own thing. I think, yeah, okay. Except just maybe those five kids who are in the youth group at Terra Bag Apart or Wheeler Barabak and have driven 12 hours to get here, maybe it does them good to realise they're not the only five kids in the world who follow Jesus. And maybe you guys have got the brilliant musicians and the resources and everything to lean into this. And, oh, no, no, there's a, we can find a decimal point where we don't agree with you and what you do. And, well, maybe we could think kingdom rather than your little universe, just, just occasionally. Now, I know no one here is guilty of that, but we do, we do need to watch it. Yes, we can become our own universe and do our own thing, but a kingdom vision will help those kids tear a bag apart or wheel a barrow back. And it's good for your people to realise that as well. And the last one, uh, you train people, you get them up to speed, you, you pour your life into them, whether they're people who um, work in the workforce and, and work part-time in the church as volunteers or people who've done the ministry training strategy and then... They, they leave and go off to other places or the ministry training strategy, what do they do? Well, they, they get all trained up and then they go off to college and go elsewhere. And it feels like, it does feel like donating blood, doesn't it? And you know, it happens at an FIC level as well. We've got, praise God, 62 people in the ministry training area across our churches. And this is a surprise. 116 people in Bible colleges. That's great. 
I feel guilty every day about not being in touch with them. Okay, all right. 116, what's that? That's about 100 and nearly 180 people in ministry training. And they go off to college. And you know what happens then? Those other guys, those other denominations try and poach them. And a lot of them do end up going that way. Now, I want them to come back to FIC, yes. But we need to also rejoice that we we're able to raise up people who will go and seek the kingdom even, even in those other denominations. And it's okay, isn't it? Because we've got a big view of the kingdom. And it hurts. Okay, so let me finish up. See the kingdom. I'm going to love our churches. Not that they're they're ours, the churches we belong to. They belong to the Lord Jesus, we belong to them. Live as witnesses to the kingdom. Preach Jesus as Lord as we wait for the palingenesia the renewal of all things. Will you pray with me? Father, we thank you for the great privilege it is to be in gospel ministry work. Even more privileged to be in fellowship in that work. We pray, please, Lord, that we might love our churches and the people in them, that we might be good shepherds to teach and love and lead people. Please help us to live as witnesses to the kingdom to preach Jesus as Lord as we wait for the palingenesia, for the renewal of all things. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.